Good morning, church. Uh, this morning, we're going to be in Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he wrote, uh, leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at a table with him. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is the word of the Lord. And I'll take that stand. <laughs> no, you're good, bro. Well, good morning, Salt Church. My name is Jonathan Randall. I'm one of the pastors on staff. So glad that you guys are with us here this morning. If you do got a Bible, open it up to that passage you just heard read, Luke chapter 5. You can uh, open it up, swipe it up, turn up whatever you're using uh, for your Bible. Luke chapter 5 is where we're going to be this morning. We are going to finish our teaching series uh, this morning called Own the Block, Learning to Love Your Neighbor. In the first week of this series, we learned that a loving neighbor knows the names of their literal neighbors in their own neighborhood. They, they know the people on their own block. And then last week, Keith taught us that a loving neighbor is a praying neighbor. It's somebody that is praying for the people that live in their own neighborhood. And this morning, we're going to learn that a loving neighbor opens up their home, invites neighbors in to share a meal around a table so that they might know that we have care and concern and love for them, that the God of the universe loves them. And the way that they're going to see that is by us loving them around our own dinner table. In the late 90s, there was a professor at Syracuse University by the name of Rosaria Butterfield. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield had just uh, gotten tenure, and she decided to write a book on why the religious right was so hateful. Uh, as a lesbian gay activist, Rosaria knew firsthand how Christians can actually be hateful towards uh, the LGBTQ community. And so she thought, hey, these seemingly decent people often use the Bible in such hateful ways. I want to research that and write a book on that. And so to start, uh, she wrote an editorial for the Syracuse Gazette, which was a student newspaper for the university. And uh, it garnered a lot of attention, uh, including attention from an elder at a Reformed Presbyterian church in Syracuse who took the editorial, slammed it down on the desk of the pastor there and said, we need to deal with this woman. She's trouble." And so the pastor, whose name was Ken Smith, said, okay, what if we invite Rosaria over for dinner? What if me and my wife, Floyd, cook her a meal, invite her over, and share the table together? So they literally wrote a letter to Rosaria, and she accepted. But she accepted because she thought this would be good research for her book. What better way to figure out the religious right than by interviewing a pastor that was on the religious right? Well, after the, the first dinner, uh, Ken and Floyd hugged Rosaria goodbye, and she left. And as she walked towards her car, she realized two things immediately. One, the pastor and his wife never shared the gospel with her. And two, they never invited her to church. Now, eventually, they would do those things. But to start, all they did was share a meal. 
And so they invited her back the next week to share a meal again, and she came. And they invited her back the next week after that for another meal, and she came, and so on and so forth. Week after week, meal after meal, it would be two years before Rosaria finally stepped foot in a church and became a Christian. But as Rosaria uh, retells this story, she remarks that the reason she became a Christian wasn't because she, the feelings of being a lesbian went away or that, that she figured out all of her worldview issues. The reason Rosaria became a Christian is because over time, around a table with food, she finally encountered Christians who lived out what they said they believed. She, she finally encountered Christians who stopped treating her like a project and treated her as a person created in the image of God in desperate need of the love of God. And over time, around this table, Rosaria's greatest need was met. She was confronted with a truth that would radically change her life, and the truth is this. Jesus is who he says he is. And that truth changed her. All it took was a weekly dinner around a table. So, church, I share that story to say this. If we want to be a loving neighbor, we cannot underestimate the power of our own dinner table. In fact, this morning, we're going to look at a follower of Jesus who uses his own dinner table to reach his neighbors for Jesus. And this matters for us this morning because so often I think we can boil Christianity down to just believing the right doctrine, but yet that right doctrine does not change the way we treat our neighbors. How many of us have invited Jesus to live in our hearts, but we've never invited a neighbor over to share a meal? How many, how many of us that will break bread and drink the cup of communion here this morning around these tables, but we won't invite our neighbors into our house to break bread and drink the cup around our own table? How many of us pray that God would bless the food to our bodies, but we don't pray that God would make us a blessing to our neighbors? I don't ask these questions to make us feel guilty. I ask these questions to wake us up, that we would live out what we say we believe and that we would love our neighbors. Not so that they just believe the same things that we do, but so that those beliefs can make them new in the same way that they should make us new. A loving neighbor is a neighbor with an open table. So with that said, let's turn to our passage this morning. Uh, I have three steps that I think will help us become a loving neighbor who opens their table for a shared meal. The three steps are this, change, celebrate, and connect. Change, celebrate, and connect. Let's take a look at the first one, change. Luke chapter 5. Verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, "Follow me." And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. I love this story because of who Jesus chooses to be on his team. He goes to a guy named Levi, a tax collector, and he says, follow me. Notice where Jesus is in this moment. He's not in a church gathering. He's not in a Bible study. He's not in a home group. He's not going to the Jerusalem seminary to find the best and brightest up-and-coming theological student. The text says that Jesus is in a tax booth with a tax collector. And he says, I want you to be on my team. I think in our culture, we miss how scandalous this is because we don't really know uh, what the reputation of a tax collector is in that day. 
A tax collector would have been a social outcast back then. And not because they were poor or uh, because they were a minority. They were a social outcast because they were a shady character who bought their way into privilege using some pretty rotten scheming. Real quick uh, history lesson here. To become a tax collector, you'd put a bid into the Roman government in order to be able to collect taxes for them. It's kind of like a construction worker putting in a bid on a job. But in order to pay back that bid and in order to make a living, a tax collector would always charge more than the tax was. So if the tax was $20, they'd ask for $35. It was, it was, it's like playing with that guy you never want to play with in the game of Settlers and Catan because he's a cheat and he will rob your friends of all the sheep and the ore in the game. You don't want to play with him. That's, that is a tax collector. And they got really good at extorting people from their money. But here's the thing. Levi is not raising money for the Jewish government. He's raising money for the Roman government that had conquered his own people. See, almost all the Roman taxes, the majority of them, were used to fund the Roman army, which would conquer lands and go in and crush riots to preserve peace throughout their empire. And a very uh, volatile place that was a hotbed for rioting was Judea or Israel, where Levi is from. And so the Roman government would often come into this country and they would squelch the riot and then they would take men, women, and children and crucify them on trees outside their cities along the streets so that when people would come into that country, they would see that you don't mess with Rome. That means there is a good chance that Levi has families in his own neighborhood who have been brutalized by the Roman government that Levi has helped to pay for. He's raising money for this. I know of no modern equivalent to this. The closest thing I think you have is like the Jewish ghetto police in World War II, selling out their own people to the Nazis and then brutalizing them in the ghetto for more food and comfort. That's, that is the picture of a tax collector here. This isn't just a shady character. This is a a person that just lacks basic morality. This is who Levi is. And Jesus says to him, follow me. Jesus wants him on his team. I'd have a few words to say to Levi, but they would all probably be four-letter words. And yet Jesus is like, you, Levi, I want you on my team. I want you to be a part of what I'm doing. Let's be friends. Let's be neighbors so that you can learn how to love your own neighbors. This is not exactly the guy you'd think Jesus would want on his team. But Salt Church, I don't think the most remarkable part of the story is the invitation from Jesus. I think the most remarkable part of the story is the response of Levi. Notice what the text says. He says, and leaving everything, he rose and he followed him. Because Levi didn't make excuses here. He didn't like look behind him and think, oh, Jesus must be talking to somebody else. You know, you know, he, he, he didn't um, laugh at the request and be like, you can't mean me, Jesus. Do you know who I am? He, he didn't let the, the, the lucrative career that he had keep him in the tax booth. He left it all and moved all of his chips in on Jesus. He radically changed. See, I think for many of us, we are like Levi. Jesus has extended the offer to follow him to us as well. But unlike Levi, we often remain in our own tax booth, convinced that there is no way Jesus wants us on his team. We think this story should be reversed, right? First, we have to change. First, we have to fix some things in our lives. First, we have to get our act together. Then Jesus will come to us and call us to follow him. 
Because that's not how this goes. Jesus pursues us while we are at our worst. And it's in that loving kindness that we change. It's in that invitation that we change. I think there's this weird perception in the church sometimes where we create this tiered system of Christians, right? There's the varsity level Christians, and, and they're the ones that uh, go off to school and they become priests and they become pastors and they're the ones that do all of God's work. And then there's JV Christians and they kind of got a defective version of the Holy Spirit. And it's like, yeah, they're saved, but no, nah, they're, they they're not really involved with what God wants to do on mission. They sit on the bench. Because despite what you heard, that, that distinction does not exist. If God has called you into a relationship with him, if he's called you to follow him, if he's called you to be saved, then he's sent you. He's unleashed you with power to go out and be a part of his mission. You have a role to play. How many of us don't think we can reach our neighbors, not because we don't know enough or we have a shy personality, but because we think our past disqualifies us, that we haven't changed enough to be used by God? How many of us let the the shame of of sexual sin or the greedy mistakes that we've made with money or bitterness against a friend or uncontrollable anger make us in a position where we think there's no way that I can love my neighbor when I'm not a good enough neighbor to begin with? How many of us let a a traumatic childhood or a mental illness or a divorce or the, the shame of sexual sins committed against us Keep us on the sideline thinking, I'm damaged goods. There's no way I can reach the needs of my neighbor when I am in such need myself. See, I think for many of us, we think there's no way God wants to use us to reach our neighbors because at the end of the day, when we look in the mirror, we think, I don't have the right past. I don't have the right pedigree. I don't have the right degree. I have the wrong family. I have the wrong character. I have the wrong rap sheet. And if my neighbors find out who I am, I'm going to be a hindrance, not a help to the mission of God. But hear me, Salt Church, you need to hear this this morning. Your past, your sin does not disqualify you from the mission of God. It qualifies you for it. Your sin does not disqualify you for the mission of God. It qualifies you for it. What's the mission of God? It's to save sinners. If you're a sinner, you're part of the mission of God. That's how this works. He wants to save you and then unleash you out to love your neighbors. Not so that they think you're awesome, but so that they see that Jesus is awesome. Because what if, what if God redeemed you from your past so that you can help others with the same past? And that they might see that Jesus can redeem them too. What if if the sin committed against you isn't some stain that Jesus has to overcome, but that it's an opportunity for Jesus to shine forth from your pain points so that others who have the similar pain points might see that Jesus is going to comfort them too? The change that God wants to make in your life is not just for you. It's for those around you to see that God is mighty to save. The change that God wants to work in your life is for your neighborhood. This actually has implications for where we should be looking for future disciples of Jesus. Again, Jesus isn't in a church. He's not in a Bible study. He went where people lived and worked. He's in a tax booth with a tax collector. He's in some shady parts of his city. This means that, guys, I think the best and most likely disciples that Jesus is calling us to make, to to, to say, hey, would you follow 
Christ alongside with me, those people, chances are, aren't in this room. They're in your neighborhood. They're on your block. They're at your job. They're at your gym. They're at the places you live, work, and play. The question is, is how do we let our neighbors see the change that God has worked in our own lives? That leads me to my second point, to celebrate. To celebrate. Picking back up the text, Luke chapter 5, verse 29. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. So after Levi leaves everything to follow Jesus, notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't go to seminary and get a degree so that he become a professional Christian and learn how to love his neighbors. No, he's like, hey, I'm going to throw a party and invite all my non-Christian friends so that they can meet Jesus and be changed like I was. What I find fascinating in Luke's gospel is that oftentimes when it depicts repentance, which by the way, that word repentance just simply means to turn around. You're turning from your sin and you're turning towards faith in Christ. But when uh, Luke's gospel portrays that, it often looks more like celebration rather than complaining, right? When, when people repent in Luke's gospel, they don't drag their feet and be like, all right, I guess I'll give up my old sin habits. I guess I'll tell my other friends about Jesus, no, they throw a celebration. They're like, I've, I've been radically changed. I got to tell everyone about this. Let's throw a party and invite everyone. And this is exactly what you see in Levi. He gathers his tax collector buddies. And then I love what the text says. He says he brings others. Others is just code word for shady characters. And then uh, the, the text says he made a great feast in his house. Now, I know some of you guys might hear that and be like, oh, Lord, please don't ask me to do that. If, if I'm called to do what Levi did here, you, you're asking me to invite my neighbors over and throw a feast. I, I hate the kitchen. I cannot cook. I don't like it. I pretty much can live off chicken nuggets, and that's it. Please don't ask me to do what Levi did. I totally get that. Let me calm your fears here this morning. When, uh, when we're called to, to in, uh, invite people over around our table and, and, and uh, share a meal with them like Levi is here, you don't have to throw a seven-course meal and bring out your grandmother's china in order to do that. Uh, in fact, some of the best shared meal experiences I ever had was in college. Uh, and we would go down to the Holiday gas station and get Jack's frozen pizzas and Mountain Dew. Or we'd go to Applebee's and we'd get half-off apps, Right? Uh, so you don't need to be this gourmet cook in order to do what Levi does here. The point isn't the meal. The point is using the meal to build the relationship. And the Bible has a word to describe this, what Levi is doing here. It's called hospitality. Hospitality is opening up your home and sharing a meal with somebody in hopes of showing that person that you love them in order that they might be introduced to Jesus. Part of the reason, guys, the ancient world was turned upside down by the, the early church was because they were really good at hospitality. And I, I'm no son of a prophet, but I'm convinced if we want to reach people for Jesus in this postmodern, post-Christian world, we better learn to be really good at hospitality as well. And believe it or not, not only is hospitality a way that you can love your neighbor, it's not optional for the Christian. Let me give you some uh, verses here. Romans 12, 13 says this, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Hebrews 13.2 says this, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers because you can be entertaining angels and you don't even know it. It's a crazy verse. Uh, 1 Peter 4.9, show hospitality to one another 
without grumbling. Now, I want to be clear here. Hospitality isn't just, hey, I'm going to invite a bunch of Christians only, just the Christians, over to my house so we can play games and share a meal. Hospitality isn't just, hey, I'm inviting you over for the sole purpose of sharing the gospel with you, and if you don't receive the gospel, you're out of my life. As if loving your neighbor, it only applies to those that receive the gospel, right? I'm not saying hospitality is less than those things. Hospitality will include showing love to Christians. Hospitality will include sharing the gospel with people that don't know it. I'm just saying we can't reduce it down to just those common denominators, Hospitality will have an open invitation to anyone who wants to come into your house and sit at the table and know what it means to be loved by the love of God as you love them. And that includes your literal, your literal neighbors. See, if we claim to follow Christ, then hospitality will mark our lives. Because our, our homes are not museums for us to collect trinkets while the world goes to hell in a handbasket. Our homes should look more like soup kitchens where we have people in and out that we might celebrate the goodness of God's grace extended in us and through us. What if instead of trying to experience the world through our tablets, we tried to change the world by opening up our tables to those around us? The truth is that of this text is that the, the invited always becomes the inviter. If you've sat at Jesus' table, you will work to make others sit at your table. A person that I think is uh, really drawn to hospitality that I know is my own wife, Lace. Um, Back in Omaha, we had a standing tradition on every Friday night, we'd have a movie night. And uh, we would order pizza, and we'd make homemade popcorn, and we'd have candy, and it was an open invitation to anyone that could come. My wife always wanted to bring people over. I always wanted to sit so I could fall asleep and, uh, during the movie. Uh, but we were constantly having people in our house. And what I love about this is our kids picked, on, picked up on my wife's hospitality, and they began to invite their friends. Uh, in our neighborhood right next to us, uh, there was a family from South Sudan, and they had two kids, Mary and Thon, and our kids would walk to school with them, and oftentimes on Friday, they would walk home together, and they would invite them over to our house. And I remember one time we got uh, like special box candy from the movie theater. You would have thought Mary and Thon had seen a ghost. Their eyes lit up. It was amazing. They're like, yeah, we get candy while we're watching a movie. This is, this is great. And then uh, what that did is it ended up opening up an invitation to more kids in the neighborhood because kitty corner to that, there was another house where there was a girl there named Rylan. And Rylan was kind of like the social outcast of the school and got picked on, didn't really get invited to much. But because of our kids' hospitality towards their friends, Mary and Thon, they invited Rylan into this movie night. And I remember one time we, we kind of culminated with a big outdoor movie with a projector screen in our backyard and invited many more other neighbors and, and friends into this. And it was an awesome example of hospitality. Now, I don't uh, have this amazing conversion story uh, to share from that where someone got radically saved, but here's why I ultimately share that story. Each one of those kids in our neighborhood got to experience the love of God because our family was just simply faithful to show up and show hospitality and love our literal neighbors. So what does this look like for you? What does it look like for you to show hospitality in your neighborhood? To be helpful this morning, I want to give you guys some practical guidelines. But first, let me do a little bit of water break. All right. How do you show hospitality? Here's a few 
pointers for you. First, make a list of people that you want to invite. Be intentional. Don't just randomly invite people. Make a list of people you want to invite. Uh, If you were here the first week, I had you guys uh, write down the names of your neighbors, uh, the eight neighbors that live around you. Maybe that's a good place to start uh, of making your list. And then make a plan to invite people over soon for a meal. Here's a great excuse. We're going to talk about this in the discussion question, but a great uh, uh, cultural phenomenon to use to throw a party is the Super Bowl. Whether you like football or not, it is a huge American uh, event uh, and party. So use the Super Bowl as an excuse to invite your neighbors over, to invite people over into your house to have a meal and practice hospitality. Third, include others. Don't be the person that feels like you got to clean the house and cook the meal and serve everyone and be the host that night. Make it a potluck and encourage other people to bring food. Encourage people to bring games. Ask if somebody, if they have a bigger house uh, and more space might be able to host. Bring another Christian friend with you to help. Don't go alone. Uh, Fourth, pray. Jesus is still alive, guys. Notice in this this feast, uh, Jesus is with Levi. Invite Jesus into your table. Fifth, go slow. Remember that memories require time and energy to create. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. There are no shortcuts to proximity and presence in the lives of people. And then lastly, remember your purpose. Remember the purpose. You want to nurture a heart for biblical hospitality that sincerely communicates to your neighbors, come back soon. We loved you here. This wasn't an inconvenience for us. We, w- we want to get to a place where our neighbors might say this. This is the win of hospitality. When your neighbor says, I don't know if I'll ever believe what you believe, but man, I sure feel welcomed and loved by you. A loving neighbor will seek to show hospitality so that others might know the love of Jesus. My last point, connect. Connect. Luke 5, 30 through 32 says this, and the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at the disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. After Levi is changed by Jesus, after he celebrates with his friends and in the midst of that celebration, what does he do? He connects Jesus to his friends. He connects the purpose of Jesus to his friends. Notice in verse 32, you have a life purpose statement from Jesus. There's a few of these in the gospel. But what, what this statement means is if you could boil down the life of Christ to one thing, it would be found in this statement. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If you could boil down the life of Christ to one thing, it would be that. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If we want to connect people to Jesus, we must connect people to this purpose. And I think this is where many Christians can go awry because we want to rewrite this purpose statement. We want to rephrase this purpose statement. We want to connect people to the Jesus we want to the version of Jesus that we like, to the version of Jesus that we have fashioned in our own minds, rather than the Jesus of the Bible. For some of us, we are like the Pharisees, 
And we want to rephrase the purpose of Jesus this way. I have come to call the righteous and condemn the sinners. We are connecting people to the wrong Jesus if we think his purpose statement is, I have come to call the righteous and condemn the sinners. See, for the Pharisees, when they asked, why don't you eat and drink with tax collectors? The issue wasn't over the food they ate. The issue was over the fact that by eating with sinners and tax collectors, Jesus seemed to be saying that he was affirming everything about the sinners. In other words, they thought, if Jesus is hanging out with these shady characters, he must be a shady character. And in their minds, Jesus shouldn't be befriending sinners. He should be condemning them. For some of us, this is honestly the Jesus we are trying to connect people to because it's the Jesus we were connected to. We think our scorecard is how far away from sinners can we possibly get? And and our righteousness is how much we go on social media and just put on blast notice all the sin we see in our society. We might not say it out loud, but I think we function this way, that the way to really connect to Jesus is to remove all the sinners from our lives. How many of us couldn't invite a non-Christian over, our, over to our house for a meal, even if we wanted to, because we simply don't know one? We've just removed all the non-Christians from our lives. Notice the question from the Pharisees is directed at the disciples and not at Jesus. They go asking this question to the disciples, not to Jesus. That means if the first followers of Jesus are accused of getting too close to sinners, then shouldn't that be an accusation against us as well? When's the last time you were accused of, hey, man, I think you're hanging out with too many sinners? The tragedy of the Pharisees and I think of some of us is that we'd rather connect, to the peop- we'd rather connect people to our own righteousness rather than the righteousness of Jesus. See, why does Jesus even say, I have not come to call the righteous? Why does he even say that when the Bible says that there's no one that's righteous, not even one? See, the irony is that Jesus has come to call sinners not just because he loves them, but because that's the only kind of people there are. He's calling the Pharisees to repentance too. The problem is is they don't see their sin. The problem is the Pharisees think that their righteousness, their morality, their goodness, their upstanding character is what connects them to Jesus. But in thinking that, that actually makes them guilty of a sin. It's called the sin of self-righteousness. And they need repentance too. Because if we truly want to love our neighbors, then we can't just say that the Pharisees are wrong. We have to do some internal work and be honest that we probably share more in common with them than we care to think. If we run away from sinners on our own block with a condemning attitude, then not only are we cutting ourselves off from them and from the love of God displayed through us, but we will tragically become blind to our own sin. Because you can't keep sin at a distance because it lives in our own hearts. And we need Jesus. We all need him. The second way we can connect people to our own version of Jesus is to overreact to the Pharisees. And we might rephrase Christ's purpose statement this way. I've come to condemn the righteous so that I can be accepted by the sinners. How many of us uh, connect uh, people to the wrong Jesus with that statement? I've come to condemn the righteous so that I can be accepted by sinners. Many of us have been taught that the ministry of Jesus is, is, is that he just hung out with sinners. And it's true. Jesus did hang out with sinners. The Bible says that he's a friend of sinners. But here's the difference. He never affirmed their sin. He took them out of their sin. He calls them to repentance. 
If I'm honest with you, I struggle a lot with this part of Jesus. <laughs> I don't want to connect my neighbors to a Jesus that's going to call them out on their sin. I want to connect them to a Jesus that will just accept them in their sin. Why? Because I'm terrified of what others think. I don't want to be considered judgmental. I don't want to be called a bigot. I don't want to be considered hateful. The truth is there are days where I care more about being liked by my neighbors rather than being a good neighbor. I don't want to be rejected. I want to be liked, right? And when I was in college and I was surrounded by non-believers, I often found myself joining in sin rather than setting an example and saying something to them and calling them to something higher. I also found myself later on hiding behind this super spiritual statement of, oh, I have to be friends with them first, and then I'll share the gospel, right? But really, that was just an excuse to indulge the sinful behavior that I wanted to still participate in with my non-Christian friends. And rather than connecting them to Jesus, I just connected to their sin. I cared more about being accepted by sinners rather than calling them out of their sin. Because Levi didn't go hang out with sinners. He brought his sinner friends to hang out with Jesus so that they could be changed by him. There's a massive difference in that. And I'm not saying this is easy. (laughs) It is not easy to love your neighbor in this way. And make no mistake, one of the most loving things you can do for your neighbor is to help connect them to the Jesus who wants to bring them out of their sin. That means you have to bring up sin in a conversation at some point. But that's not easy. We live in a culture that's redrawn the boundary lines of sin, that's redefined acceptance into approval. But I love what Rosaria Butterfield says in her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. It says this, how can I love my neighbor without misleading her into thinking I approve of everything she does? First, remember that Christians cannot give good answers to bad questions. No one approves of everything that others do. No one. It is a false question. The better question is this. How can my neighbors know that because I live under God's authority, rather than the compulsions of my own selfish desires, their secrets are safe with me? The answer is simple. Love the sinner and hate your own sin. Salt Church, over my 26 years of being a Christian, here's what I found. If you open up your home regularly, if you invite people in, and you sit down at a table and genuinely pursue care, concern, and love towards them, if you love your neighbor through the gift of hospitality, then around that table, your neighbor will begin to discover that you are a safe person that they can bring their sin to. You can be a loving neighbor by pointing to the real Jesus who has come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Your kitchen table is that powerful. Let's be a people that are changed by Jesus. Celebrate what he has done in our lives and connect others to the Jesus we read about on the pages of scripture. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. God, we thank you for calling a man named Levi out of a tax booth, a tax collector, to be on your team. And I can only imagine this dinner, this great feast that he threw, and all of his tax collector buddies seeing the Jesus that had changed Levi's life. Oh, God, would we all become a Levi here this morning? Would Jesus enter in and change our lives? Would, 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 would we know that the invitation to come and follow him, God, we don't have to clean up our lives. 
and become a particular kind of person that has all our issues fixed before we can take Jesus up on that invitation. God, through your Holy Spirit, God, you are drawing people to yourself. God, would we realize that the love of God pursues us when we are at our worst and that we are all sinners in need of repentance. And God, would we be people of celebration, constantly opening up our homes, bringing people in that they might sit around our tables and know the love of God by the way in which we love them. Would these be tables where gospel conversations can happen and people can be led into the kingdom, that they might be connected to the Jesus, the real Jesus of the scriptures, who's come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Oh God, we move in our midst. Would we truly be a people that own our own block and love our neighbors? And God, would you, through that, turn Greeley upside down, that all might see your name to the glory and praise of Jesus Christ forever and ever. Amen.